All right, man. Welcome to the introduction for episode 165 of Crow 777 Radio. Jason Lingren is with me, and we are finally going to be covering AI. It'll probably come in a series. I don't know if we'll do them back-to-back, but the amount of research done on artificial intelligence goes years back to when I was in college studying Internet technology. I remember looking at a supposed program called Phalanx, which was said, uh, actually, maybe it was Echelon, I forget, It was said to collect all digital communications of any kind everywhere, all the time. And I've been looking at these ideas ever since. Well, here I would state that I've been at it for three or four months now, the research behind this, to include mainstream accounts and mainstream published books in order to logically deduce what's possible. And I'll just say this, people have no idea how big a part of our everyday life artificial intelligence is. Let's jump in with Jason Lindgren and give it a go. Cheers. All right, man. Welcome to Crow 777 Radio. This is episode 165. Jason Lindgren is with me, and we're going to be covering artificial intelligence. Um, I see so much talk of it online, but I see very few people who have actually researched it and understand anything about it. Um, Basically, this is going to be a tale of two countries, the United States and China. For the most part, Japanese the, uh, Japan creeps in uh, in the gaming, but it doesn't make up a major portion of what we're about to cover. This is among the most researched episodes I've ever done. Um, I've been thinking about this for years, even when I was back in college. Uh, but in the last three or four months, I've even gone through main, mainstream published accounts. Uh, one of the books was a monster, too. But anyhow, welcome, Jason. Good morning. I think you've got me beat on the Decades series. This is going to be quite in-depth. Yeah, um, I think this will run into a series. Um, I'm guessing there's another three episodes to finish out the artificial intelligence portion of things so that people have an accurate overview of what's going on with artificial intelligence. And then there's the whole idea of the new type of capitalism that has been built on the back of all this. And it's been coined surveillance capitalism, probably by the author of the book uh, we're going to mention. I'm not sure... I'm not for sure she coined the term, but she used it as a title, uh, and it certainly fits the whole idea there. So we're going to open up here uh, with a bullet point, and we're going to jump over very quickly to the mainstream, in quotes, acceptable history of China. Uh, The idea here is to demonstrate that this is the long game. Manufacturing and so many things started being pushed over to China, and it culminates in where we find ourselves now, where actually, believe it or not, China is the leader in artificial intelligence right now. And we'll tell you why when we get there. Anyhow, it's all you, Jason. So, as we stated, this will be one of the most researched episodes to date once we clear the mainstream timeline of events covering interaction and supposed history between China and the United States. As we get into the AI portion of this episode, it is important to consider how much of the supposed magic attributed to AI is actually possible. For the record, anyone can look up simplified versions of what AI does using the wisdom of the crowd or the law of large numbers, which will demonstrate the spooky, powerful possibilities at hand as we enter the age of AI. The supposed history from mainstream sources will show the long game and how long ago manufacturing and power started to be shifted to China. Let's consider Great Britain handing Hong Kong back to China in the late 1990s as part of the tee-up for Chinese dominance on the world stage. 
Yeah, and I don't think anyone can really argue at this point that Chinese is very dominant in our everyday lives, even just with the products, the crap that is stocked in all of our Walmarts and everything coming from China. But the Britain thing, handing Britain handing control, supposed control of Hong Kong back to China in the late 90s, what was it, 97, 98, something like that, um, that's kind of an important thing to consider. After all, in the United States, we have Wall Street in Britain, there's the city of London, which is said to be bigger than all the others combined at this point, believe it or not. And the the third little money market area would be in Hong Kong there. So that's part of what got handed back. But as I mentioned in an earlier episode, the claim is currently that the city of London dwarfs Wall Street and Hong Kong put together. I don't know how you ever proved that out, but that is the current claim. So looking into the way back long ago... The Silk Road was an ancient network of trade routes that connected the East and the West. It was central to cultural interaction between the regions for many centuries. The Silk Road primarily refers to the terrestrial routes connecting East Asia and Southeast Asia with East Africa, West Asia, and Southern Europe. The Silk Road derives its name from the lucrative trade in silk carried out along its length beginning in the Han Dynasty, 207 BCE to 220 CE. The Han Dynasty expanded the Central Asian section of the trade routes around 114 BCE through the missions and explorations of the Chinese imperial envoy Zhang Qian. The Chinese took great interest in the safety of their trade products and extended the Great Wall of China to ensure the protection of the trade route. Trade on the road played a significant role in the development of the civilizations of China, Korea, Japan, the Indian subcontinent, Iran, Persia, Europe, the Horn of Africa, and Arabia, opening long-distance political and economic relations between the civilizations. Though silk was the major trade item exported from China, many other goods were traded as well as religions, syncretic philosophies, sciences, and technologies. Diseases, most notably plague, also spread along the Silk Road. In addition to economic trade, the Silk Road was a route for cultural trade among the civilizations along its network. All right, as we get in here, let's just make one thing clear. As we go through this mainstream history, take it with a grain of salt. Um, I don't have time or energy right now to dispute all the dates and everything else we're about to drop. We're going to use this as a basis for conversation. The reason we open up with Silk Road here is as we get into the artificial intelligence, um, the Silk Road is already right now, as we speak, uh, being rebuilt and used in a very strategic way. But we'll get there, Jason. The Opium Wars were two wars in the mid-19th century involving Great King and the British Empire and concerning the British imposition of trade of opium upon China, thus compromising China's sovereignty and economic power for almost a century. The clashes included the First Opium War from 1839 to 1842 and the Second Opium War, 1856 to 1860. The wars and events between them weakened the Qing Dynasty and forced China to trade with the other parts of the world. In 1820, before the First Opium War, China's economy was the largest in the world, according to British economist Angus Madison. In another investigative report published by Michael Semblast of J.P. Morgan and updated by the World Economic Forum, similar conclusions were reached that China's economy was the largest in the world for many centuries until the Opium Wars. 
Furthermore, China was a net exporter and had large trade surpluses with most Western countries. Within a decade after the end of the Second Opium War, China's share of global GDP had fallen by half. That makes you think about what a drug dealer actually is, huh? I guess when the crown is forcing drugs into a country, that's legal. Um, I don't think there's much denying uh, that this opium nonsense went on. Um, we can always question dates and mainstream timelines, but it goes to show uh, what's gone on here. And I would ask a simple question, you know. Basically, the tiny island of Britain took over major portions of the world um, and they're not that big, nowhere near what China was. And China had a bigger, um, bigger money machine. Uh, their GDP was the biggest in the world. And Britain ends up using many of the things Chinese invented um, to take over the world, things like gunpowder and compasses and any number of things we could mention. Uh, but as we come into the modern era, it looks like the table has turned. It looks like China's going to be the... Uh, the country kicking doors down, and we'll, uh, we'll seek to outline that as we get into artificial intelligence. The thing to consider here, of course, is that most of the bankers or the banking systems of the world are in England and in the city of London. So this has to be by design, if indeed you accept that to be true. Right. Uh, I don't think there's any doubt, but consider this, you know, uh, the, the British, you know, there was a whole series of books written on this by James Clavell, um, and they start from the very founding. It tells the story of the very founding uh, of, of Hong Kong, uh, but the British controlled that, and it is one of the three major money markets cited in the world today. Um, so do you suppose they ever lost control? I'm just asking. The Chinese Civil War was a civil war in China fought between the Kuomintang, or KMT-led government of the Republic of China, and the Communist Party of China, or the CPC, lasting intermittently between 1927 and 1949. Although particular attention is paid to the four years of Chinese Communist Revolution from 1945 to 1949, the war actually started in August of 1927 with the White Terror at the end of Generalissimo Chiang Kai-shek's Northern Expedition and essentially ended when major hostilities between the two sides ceased in 1950. The conflict took place in two stages – the first between 1927 and 1937, and the second from 1946 to 1950. The second Sino-Japanese War from 1937 to 1945 was an interlude in which the two sides were united against the forces of Japan. The Civil War marked a major turning point in modern Chinese history, with the communists gaining control of mainland China and establishing the People's Republic of China, or the PRC, in 1949, forcing the Republic of China, or ROC, to retreat to Taiwan. It resulted in a lasting political and military standoff between the two sides of the Taiwan Strait, with the ROC in Taiwan and the PRC in mainland China both officially claiming to be the legitimate government of all of China. This is actually still going on today to some degree. However, with the People's Republic of China in place for the mainland, the Communist Party's planned economy leads to widespread poverty over the next 40 years. So here's the thing about mainstream history accounts. If you go read what we discovered uh, in a Chinese version, uh, it almost doesn't resemble what we just read. So take it with a grain of salt. These are talking points. This is the acceptable history that the internet will provide uh, anyone who's searching. But there's another concern here. Uh, we're looking at chessboard 
pieces moving, aren't we? Uh, how is it that a tiny nation like Britain, smaller than Britain, Japan, um, rolled over these guys? They're massive. They had a huge GDP. They had Lord knows how many people. And yet here again, we see a tiny island nation rolling over them. I'm just saying. In 1953, we have the aftermath of the Korean War, and all trade and travel between the United States and China is frozen. Would you like to play a game? How about chess? Go ahead, man. 1971, the U.S. Secretary of State, Henry Kissinger, supposedly under the desires of President Richard Nixon, makes a secret visit to China, laying the groundwork for resumption of trade between the United States and China by the end of the decade. And this is the same situation where he went over to Saudi Arabia to arrange the petrodollar. So Mr. Henry Kissinger was quite busy during his time. And no doubt, man, moving the black pieces on the chessboard. Um, I remember when this was going on, it was a big deal for most of the 70s. Uh, I was in a punk rock band. We even had a song called Dung Chow Ping about this, believe it or not. But one of the things was Coca-Cola was finally going to make it into Red China. That was one of the things I remember from this period. 1974, Foxconn Technology Group, Hanhai Precision Industry. Terry Gao is said to have started Foxconn in 1974 in Taiwan with a $7,500 loan from his mother and 10 elderly employees. This was at the booming time of Taiwan's export economy. With his initial startup funds, he purchased several plastic molding machines and began to make channel-changing knobs for black-and-white television sets. The huge turning point came in 1980 when he received an order from Atari to supply the connectors that linked the joystick cable to the 2600 video game console system. At the height of Atari's massive popularity, 15,000 consoles were being produced every day. He further expanded his business in the 1980s by embarking on an 11-month trip across the United States in search of customers. As an aggressive salesman, Gao broke in uninvited into many companies and was able to get additional orders, despite having security called on him multiple times. In 1988, he opened his first factory in mainland China in Shenzhen, where his largest factory remains today. At the time, it was among the first foreign companies to establish operations in China. Operations in China significantly increased in scale when Gao vertically integrated the assembly process and facilities for workers. The manufacturing site became a campus that included housing, dining, medical care, and burial for the workers, and even chicken farming to replenish the cafeteria. It now has 25 factories, not just in China, but also in 12 other countries, those being Australia, Brazil, the Czech Republic, India, Japan, Mexico, the Netherlands, Poland, Russia, Slovakia, Singapore, and the United States. To name just a few things, Foxconn makes Apple iPhones and iPads, Android phones, Sony Playstations, HP computers, and on and on the list goes. They are the world's largest contract maker of electronics, and it all started in 1974. 
All right. That was a lot to get out, but it's important. Don't get me started on the word Foxconn. Words have meaning and so does their numerology. But this is all the way back in the early 70s. Um, and look at the end of this bullet point where Jason lists out all the countries they currently are. You can see the intended shift of manufacturing going on beginning in the early 70s, starting to cement itself in the 80s. This is going to result in the shift of world power we see currently, where the United States is at some level being demoted and China is being propped up mighty high. Well, everyone was busy partying in the 80s, so all the big distraction was going on for the folks in the West while things in the East were being laid into place. Indeed. Uh, the 80s is basically where I mark the decade that made the current situation we're in. And people should consider, remember what was happening to the auto industry. That was one of the heartbeats of the United States. Uh, it was a big deal. There was not a country in the world that didn't watch Hollywood movies and admire uh, the car industry and the cars the United States made. And here we are in the 80s. All that starts to come apart by design, I might add. 1978, Deng Xiaoping was a Chinese politician who was the paramount leader of the People's Republic of China from 1978 until his retirement in 1989. After Chairman Mao Zedong's death in 1976, Deng led China through far-reaching market economy reforms. He would usher in a new era of economic reform where restrictions against entrepreneurship would be relaxed which led the way for the insane explosion of China's manufacturing economy that continues massively today. Most people don't think of it. Uh, and, and again, I was in a band and we were young and we knew who Deng Xiaoping was. Um, this is 78 and this is starting to change China wholesale. Um, there had been a, a thought in the mind of the world that communism and capitalism were on opposite sides. They were oil and water. They didn't mix. But with Deng Xiaoping, what you start to see is the melding of capitalism with communism that results in what we're going to cover today. And it is so powerful what they're doing there simply because there's capitalism gone wild and it's controlled by people in a communist regime who simply snap their fingers and what what they want gets done overnight, and that's a far cry from how places like the United States work. But anyhow. Well, I think it's safe to say that they were able to build this infrastructure and put it on the world map in such a strong way because they did it at the expense of the people, borderline slave labor, and also at the expense of their natural resources and their land because they just didn't care about stripping it and using it and destroying it. Yeah, back, you know, I, I think that's beginning to change. Um, they're starting to take a real hard look at the damage they've done to the environment. Um, and if I had to guess, you know, we're talking about China here. Uh, Z, the president there, is, is in for life right now. So I would imagine you'll see a, a much, much speedier recovery uh, in some of the damage they've done. But even in the, what was it, the last Olympics that was there, uh, the air quality was so bad um, that that was a complaint of many of the athletes that participate in that charade. It's also a different world where everything is more connected, so people are finding out about what they've done for decades and saying, how can you do that to your country? That's not cool. Well, right. And it went on the world stage. You know, when the whole world was looking, um, people saw just how nasty the air quality alone was. And that sets aside many other damages we could talk about that have gone on during the industrialization phase. 
1997, Hong Kong is returned from British colonial rule to Chinese mainland rule. It would quickly become a financial and legal gateway into China for foreign investors, again helping to bolster industry in China. Yeah, there's no doubt in my mind that this is just a very crafty chessboard move. And I would ask the question,、uh, did Britain ever really lose its influence over the money market there? And clearly, this is like a, it was the first little gateway into what people considered to be red China.、Um, that was the place where West met East. And、uh, again, it's, I think, the third largest money market in the world or something like that. I didn't look it up, I'm guessing, but I think it's number three. Behind Wall Street. 2000, the United States Congress grants China permanent normal trade relations status, which would provide them the same trade advantages that other countries have. As a result, China becomes eligible to join the World Trade Organization, which it will do in the following year. This is an important bullet point. So, we're talking about the millennium here, 2000, and Congress grants China permanent normalization of trade status. This will coincide lock, stock, and barrel with the acceptable timeline, the mainstream timeline of when AI comes online. And it's right here at 2000, although I suspect it's been going on for decades.、Uh, the mainstream view is that Google brings it to bear. Uh, they go public 98, 99, something like that. And by 2000, they've already been forced to abandon the don't be evil you know, idea they had for the company and start using AI in, not, in, in a shameful manner, basically. 2005, the American Conservative, a bi monthly magazine founded in 2002 that is published by the American Ideas Institute, reports that more than half of all goods imported from China were made by United States companies offshoring their production to China. So there it is. There it is. There's the little sleight of hand going on.、Uh, there's the little shift coming where China's being propped up. That's an important bullet point to remember. 2000, 2005. Go ahead. 2010, to show just how ruthless Chinese business practices must be and also how bad conditions must be in their production facilities, 11 employees at the Foxconn plant in Shenzhen commit suicide. By jumping out of buildings. The company eventually responds by installing nets around the campus and offering a 24 hour counseling center. It's hard to know how much of this is fear porn, but at the base of it, if you take a look,、um, there's horrendous conditions there. You can see more than one manufacturing center with nets set up if you do a search online.、Um, and it's, things like this are the, are the reason for the tasteless butt of jokes that talk about sweatshops.、Um, these, these are the guys who have.、Uh, All these workers getting paid very little. And by Chinese standards, the working condition is much different. It's more like your life is spent at work, kind of. The impression I'm under is that you live, eat, sleep. Yep. That's it. You're in the plant, you're just there. Yeah, and, and one of the stories you hear often is that these people that are working there come from rural areas that were agrarian. Um, mostly, and so they're coming supposedly to the city centers to do work.、Um, the numbers alone in that last bullet point make me take pause, but I don't think there's any doubt、uh, that, that what the labor is paid and how they're treated is a far cry from how it's done in the West. And currently, 
Foxconn is China's largest exporter and the world's largest manufacturer of electronic components. Their client list includes electronics giants Apple, Amazon.com, Intel, Hewlett Packard, Dell, Nintendo, Microsoft, and Sony, and probably quite a few more. Well, Google is missing from that list, but you know, when you name a thing,、uh, it has a meaning, doesn't it? Foxconn is basically triple six con. But anyhow, Jason, we had to get through that, in my view, unsavory mainstream history to set the stage. Now let's get into the AI. China is the working template for the implementation of artificial intelligence. For the record, Darwin, Australia, is already adopting China's social ratings and AI surveillance systems. It seems that Darwin is being used to demonstrate the evolution of worldwide AI, and the meaning in the name of this city should be lost on no one. Is there a bigger poke in the eye?、Um, this just came to light very recently that Darwin was already going down this road of what's been put forward in China, and it it is Orwellian. Beyond my ability to describe it, and I will say again, is the name of the city Darwin tied to evolution lost on anyone? This is the infiltration of China's AI and surveillance policies being ported into the West for the first time in a city, and I pause, named Darwin. The research for this episode spans years of personal knowledge as well as many sources. But two should be named here as they represent the first mainstream published efforts to alert the world to the age of AI. The first is a book called *The Big Nine* by Amy Webb, and the second is a monster of a book called *The Age of Surveillance Capitalism* by Shoshana Zuboff. It may well be that the title of the latter book coined the term "surveillance capitalism," which so rightly fits our topic. And it is also possible the first book mentioned coined the term "G mafia." So I've read both of these、um, because to be able to fairly balance what we're about to deliver, I had to understand what the mainstream sources were saying. But、uh, I'll tell you what. The first book,、uh, "The Big Nine,"、uh, I take issue with one major. Idea that's put forward in it over and over again. It is said something to the effect of, "Well, the boys working at Google are good guys, but this product called AI they're making is going to destroy humanity." And I have, I take umbrage with that. Doesn't matter how nice a guy someone is that's involved in making destructive things. And so here we have two books, which are some of the earliest out, trying to tell people flat out that AI is going to change humanity. Um, and they take that that kind of attack. So I take umbrage with that all day. But、uh, on the tail of the series we do here on AI, we will also cover surveillance capitalism because it is in fact the new money exchange system that is growing up around the digital age. Basically, we are in an age shift which will seemingly dwarf the industrial revolution, but this age will be powered and driven by AI and digital systems. And I think just about anyone can take a look around and see that this is so. Indeed. Currently, AI has quietly become the foundational backbone of money financial systems, all retail supply systems, the electrical power grid, and all online systems that correct your spelling, remove your content, or give you an email nudge. Gmail. It is currently collecting and performing magical algorithms on all digital data to determine what we should buy, watch. Listen to 
or read to include what we are allowed to find when searching for information online. You know, I see so many people talking about AI online, and they're so far from from the mark. Let's just ask a simple question to put this in perspective. Is there any company in the world that has enough employees to monitor one aspect of our lives, YouTube, as an example? Consider how many videos and the length of all those videos get uploaded every single day. And I will submit to you, there is not a company in the world that has enough employees to monitor all that. And yet, we all recognize that it's all being monitored. Do you get what we are saying here? It is AI that is doing that. And while at the outset of this, I urged everyone to question just how magical are the abilities of AI. And I gave two examples. The wisdom of the crowd, you can look up, which is a very low-level kind of mimicry of what AI does, and another one called the large law of large numbers. If you understand how those two things work, then it should be no mystery to you that the magic of AI does exist. It's a bit like black magic, but there are other aspects of AI which I think are about like the magic red button uh, sitting on the president's desk that we're told could destroy the entire world. Uh, Common sense flees when these types of ideas. So I'll do my best to point out the things that are a bit over the top. But um, I don't think anyone can argue that looks at even something as simple as the wisdom of crowd uh, can doubt what what the ability of AI can do with infinite amounts of data, which is where we are now, infinite amounts of data. The onset of artificial intelligence is attributed to nine mega corporations, which should seem very familiar to everyone. Google, Amazon, Apple, IBM, Microsoft, and Facebook in the United States. Each first letter of these corporations creates the new term, G-Mafia. In China, there are three AI-driven companies, Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent. And at this moment in time, the three Chinese corporations are far ahead of the United States companies. This is partially due to amounts of data collected and, of course, communist view of privacy and rights. You have no privacy. Yeah, it's it's a hell of a thing, Jason. You know, the mainstream is going to tell you that AI starts to really be a thing around the millennium, 2000. By 2002, it's implemented. We'll get there. But um, we're, we're led to believe that China didn't have any dog in the fight up to that point, but now it's far ahead. So the claim here is basically from the millennium forward, and bear in mind, U.S. normalizes trade you know, relationships in 2000, you can see what's going on here, I think. In the United States, it has been shown that the federal government has basically outsourced artificial intelligence development to the mentioned six United States companies, and by extension, Wall Street, whose interests and goals do not necessarily align with the freedoms and concerns of Western populations, and in most cases, depart sharply from the ideals stated in the founding of the United States of America. All right, here's the thing. Here is the main thing about all this. AI is collecting data on all of us. It's collecting data on everything. And people may say they don't care, but if they understand what's being done with the data, they should care. First of all, no one's ever going to really be treated as a human being anymore. They're just going to be treated as a statistical probability 
based on all the data and the algorithms. In other words, the algorithms are going to predict whether you're a risk or, or anything about you, and that will be what's run with. Um, you know, take take the contrast of the idea like, uh, what's that movie with Tom Cruise? The Minority Report, right? So they're basically doing a similar thing here, except they're using three magical people uh, to stand in for what the data uh, in AI actually allows real companies to do. Um, and what they're saying here is we can predict that you're going to kill someone tomorrow, so we're going to come arrest you now. But in the movie, it is pointed out that when Tom Cruise is given the foreknowledge that it's been predicted he will kill on this day, he is then has the choice once again to kill or not to kill. And this underlies the conundrum of all of this. But suffice it to say that this technology has come to be so powerful so quickly, there's basically not a law or an organization in the world it seems, that is protecting anybody from any of it. And by the way, everyone should keep in mind, uh, I think that Jason and I have mentioned in at least two other shows, uh, I think it was 1999, if I remember correctly, the CEO of Sun Microsystems announced to the world that there was no longer any privacy. And I remembered at the time, people didn't take it seriously, they laughed. But basically, the point was that these companies doing this were going to give us all these free things like email and other things. And the price was that all our data was going to get collected. But here's the rub. No one understood it. No one. Even when it was announced point blank like that, no one took it seriously because we had just come from a period when the idea of privacy went without question, mostly. So I would point out that all this AI in the West has been just slid in under the rug to where we are now, where it is basically a part of nearly everything right now as we speak. How many people are aware of that? And so that's the rub. Uh, when something like this becomes implemented and it's going to affect absolutely everybody, shouldn't people be aware of it? And in the West, people are not aware of it for the most part, even you know, in as far as I look at the chat rooms and watch what people say about AI and they don't have a clue. But anyhow, go ahead, Jason. The story of AI in China is a whole different story as in the U.S. AI is being quietly slipped into all systems that allow modern life. In China, it is in your face and the communist government is openly pushing aggressive measures to ensure it will be a world leader in many areas that matter to us all. They have now announced the launching of its next-generation artificial intelligence and a deployment plan that states it will be the world leader in AI by 2030, though I think it can be shown that they already are. Let's look at Darwin City in Australia to understand the evolution of AI developed in China and shipped to the West. Yeah, this is really a paradigm shift if you think about it. Um, we've just come from a period of history where so much of world culture came out of the West, whether it was Hollywood or cars or whatever you might point to. So now we're at the threshold where that's all been reversed. For the first time, um, China has stepped up, taken over AI that was developed supposedly in the United States and brought to be sometime around the millennium, although I suspect it was decades earlier, but the companies that openly were using it around 2002, which would be Google, they grab it, they have so much more data than the rest of the world, and I'll describe why, and they implement this kind of Orwellian 
social rating system that is really beyond the pale to anything we've experienced in the West ever, other than reading books like 1984. And here it has been stuck through the front door or the back door, maybe, and it's implemented in Darwin City in Australia. I can't underscore enough what what this means in the long run. With accompanying false flag. Hmm. Yeah, exactly. But I'm not sure if we're allowed to mention that, are we? I guess we're not, but we do anyhow. The population in China is stated to be 1.4 billion, which gives them control of the most important resource in the modern age, human data collection. Not only does China control its own internet and massive population's data, but it also scrapes the rest of the internet that is open to the world, giving it the best-fed AI in the world and the largest data set ever known. China does not have the privacy or security restrictions that are said to exist in the United States, which is now questionable as the U.S. is implementing these tactics under the table. Right. I mean, I would I would ask, really, I, I would honestly ask if there's a difference um, between what's going on here in the West and there in the East. There in your face, there's really no mystery. But here, like I mentioned before, most people don't even realize the extent to which AI has collected everything and is a part of everything we need to live a modern life, to include the energy grid. Um, and, and the idea here is that China has an internet and it's got what they call the great firewall of China around it, um, keeping the West out of their internet mostly. Um, but that's that really wouldn't matter. How many people in the West could even deal with Chinese characters, for one thing? So they have a stated, they claim, who knows if it's true, 1.4 billion people. That's a lot of people. And they have all that da data. Then they go out to the rest of the internet and they scrape that too, to the point where having done all the research I just did, I would be surprised if each person listening to this already doesn't have a social rating score on a Chinese database somewhere. That's the extent of data collection we're talking about here. So is there going to come a point when you've already got your social rating? It's just in China right now for some future time when this rolls out past Darwin, Australia into mainstream America. Hard things to know, but it is sure as hell possible. China also has a powerful facial recognition AI in place called MegVI and another called SenseTime. It is claimed that Chinese citizens were asked to smile into a camera, which would pay some of their bills. The data was then used effectively to teach AI how to differentiate between Asian faces, which are much more similar than Western-raced faces. The claim is that once this was done, AI did not even need to match the face anymore to ID people as it could use probability to do that. So this is a heck of a thing, um, facial recognition. And again, this is another thing where people have no idea how far down the road we are. Uh, we, Jason and I were just looking at a clip the other day where AI was given a painting of a face or a single snapshot of a face and it basically created a 3D video rotating all the way around the head accurately. But when they first set out to do this, the idea put forward, uh, whether correct or not, probably correct, is that the AI in China was having a tough time with facial recognition because basically everyone has the same color eyes, same color hair, a lot of similar face shapes, these types of things. So what they discovered was when someone smiled, the micro expressions could be used. But here's the scary part. Once they got 
some number of citizens to pay some portion of their bills by smiling into a camera. It was something like less than 70 hours before the AI had taught itself what it needed to know. And then again, the claim is that the images are just ancillary at that point because the probability of what the AI does could probably pin whatever it wants on you without the image of your face in the first place. In a society where they have a boot on your face the whole time, I gotta wonder, how often does the average Chinese person smile when they're out in the street? You know, I almost suspect, Jason, that in in the big cities in China, they're experiencing something similar to what we experienced in the 80s. Um, there's all this capitalism. The first generation of people who were buying cars and all these things that their parents and grandparents didn't even dream of. So it's possible, and I've thought about this, that maybe part of what's going on is there is a massive free-for-all kind of 80s-like party going on in China, which makes what's going on behind the scenes all the more doable. After all, we all experienced it here. We had a big party in the 80s, and no one gave a fig about all the other things that were going on, which are so important to our lives now, I would add. In 2018, China's leader Xi gave a speech telling the world that they are, and will soon be, the undisputed AI global superpower. It also outlined how online systems would ensure how people live, act, and are taught correct values, and to say the correct things in the online world, which is now the only public forum that matters there. As if that is not Orwellian enough, Z will now hold his leadership position for life. All term limits were removed. You want to call that an iron fist? It's it's the ultimate chess moves here. You know, it's everything has been set up to make the systems that are being implemented here uh, unstoppable. Um, by them anyhow, remains to be seen what happens in the West in terms of AI. Will there ever come a point when a person's privacy matters again or, or these types of ideas? And, you know, we could guess in any direction, but it's not looking promising, as you will see in this next bullet point. Indeed, because George Orwell would roll over in his pseudonymed grave as the following information bends any mind concerned with human rights and freedoms. As we know, China has become a strange blend of capitalism gone wild. And communism, two ideas that used to be like oil and water, they just don't mix. This means that China will allow some Western companies to do business there, but an edict ensures all data collected on their people will be strictly held on Chinese servers under their control, which allows security forces to access and monitor the data at will. <laughs> With multiple supercomputers to assist them, I don't doubt. China now has a police cloud which tracks mentally ill humans or those who have criticized the government. It also tracks minority groups like the Muslim Uyghurs, who the UN claim are being held in camps by the millions, which is hard to confirm and unprovable as fear porn or reality. The data also allows what is called China's Integrated Joint Operations Program to detect human activity deviations or detect late bill payment, among many other possibilities. This falls so short because it allows them to detect anything. Um, as we get in here, you'll realize that Chinese version of Facebook is not just some people who want to or a lot of people who want to using it. It's everybody, everybody and every organization as well. But one of the points here is that they're using it to track mentally ill people 
And that is defined, I'm not even kidding, as people who go against what the government says. That's what makes you mentally ill. And I would point out in the gun control debate here, we see whispers of this very same idea. What is that nonsense thing they made up? I think it's called operational defiance disorder or something like that. Yeah, uh, it's it, there's got to come a point if if this mass data sweep of AI controlling everything isn't curbed somehow, where these will be the things that happen, and you can't argue it. There's no person at a desk. There's no phone number to call. It's basically machine learning treating you as a probability, and if it labels you mentally ill for this reason or that. How do you tell the AI that you don't appreciate it or to undo it? Basically, you don't. And that's what we're talking about here. And not only that, as we get into the definitions of AI, you will begin to understand there is not a person living, nor will there ever be a person living, who could possibly understand how the AI reached the decisions it makes. And even if you throw out everything else we know to be correct, the simple fact that the claim is that trillions of processes a second are done, a person's lifespan is not enough to review trillions of processes. So kind of shows you where we're headed here. I'm kind of guessing at this point that whatever specific they want to know about, whatever parameter they want to enter into the multiple supercomputers we know they have running, they can crunch the insane amount of data and come out with a long list of ticker tape of people who fall into that parameter. That's right scary to even think about. Well, that's the ghost in the machine idea, which will probably be tied to this episode because this is the basis for the idea of, of the ghost in the machine. It's actually the entire basis for the movie, The Matrix. Smith is AI. Um, but yeah, uh, if people just take the time to go look up the wisdom of the crowd where a hundred people guess how many gumballs is in a jar, um, that is the lowest, most basic level of the predictive capability. But what most people don't know is you get a hundred people, they're within 10% or something of the true number, guessing how many gumballs you get a thousand, you're getting close to the mark. You get a hundred thousand and you're right there on whatever that number is. And that is a bit like a ghost in the machine. How is that possible? How is it possible that a hundred thousand people guess how many gumballs are in a massive jar and you get an accurate number returned from averaging their guesses. And that is such a low-level comparison of what AI is doing that I would now make the statement, and I probably did before this on the tail of all this, we have reached a time where the past, the present, and the future exist simultaneously for the possessors of this technology. That's a scary thought, man. And of course, this now brings us to the social rating system. This, basically put, is an AI-powered social credit system with the slogan, allow the trustworthy to roam everywhere under heaven, make it hard for the discredited to take a single step. The stated goal is to enforce a problem-free society. In order to enforce trustworthiness, citizens are rated with points given or taken to create the social score. A traffic ticket or jaywalking will remove points, and heroic acts will add them as examples. Violators can have their image and offense posted on electronic billboards or social media sites like Weibo, a Facebook-like platform in China. Low social scores become a nightmare, making it hard to get loans at a good rate or at all. Rent apartments are even getting children into school, and sometimes they'll even prevent you from getting tickets on a particular train or plane that you may want to get on. 
Keep in mind that city centers are increasingly surveilled by cameras in nearly all cities in China. Like in the United States, they also carry the ultimate tracking system, the cell phone. This is the thing, man. Um, I, I often wonder, you know, I'm a person who doesn't really use cell phones. And I do have one, but it is so old that I'm not even sure the average youngster would call it smart. Here's the rub. Those cell phones are going to be important bricks in the wall of all this. They're going to become the basic tracking systems. You know, you've already seen it pre-echoed in movies. Or what was it? It was a Rick and Morty episode where the president of the United States calls Morty and it says on the screen, if you don't answer this call, it's a crime. Um, This is where we're headed. And people have no idea how critically important cell phones are to the coming age of AI. Um, It can't be overstated. It really cannot. And that sets aside all the health concerns, which are painfully obvious, associated with all the RF signals buzzing around us all. The Silk Road, which connects China to Europe, is also strategically being used to export China's new surveillance systems under the guise of development and infrastructure improvement. The old road goes through the Middle East and Africa to Europe, and China now holds control by virtue of huge amounts of capital offered to help developing nations as well as bridge and road building or improvement. In doing this, China is also exporting its surveillance technology and collecting data in the process as a direct attack on what it calls liberal democratic orders. Also tied to this effort is a planned world energy grid controlled by China and already being implemented in some smaller nations. It is claimed they have invented a way to generate power in western China and deliver it using ultra-high-voltage cable technology. China is already making deals with other nations in its goal of being the controlling entity of the world power grid. Already neighboring countries are entering into agreements to this end. This is already happening. I don't know how much information the average person can dig up on the old Silk Road, but this is already going on. And in some of the countries that are not that wealthy, money has been poured in there for infrastructure and other things. But what's come with it is surveillance and data collection among other things. But this is a bullet point people should consider. China is openly saying that it's in the process of a direct attack on what it calls liberal democratic orders. So here's all this technology that's been brought to bear already in China. It's already coming into Darwin, Australia. It's headed for the West. And one of the tenets behind all of this is that it's a direct attack on liberal democratic orders. Uh, And this is backed up with published accounts, by the way, for anyone who wants to take umbrage with it. And for the last point for hour one, long before AI agents like Siri, Alexa and the Chinese Tian Mao came to be, the basic tenets of what mass data could be used for was known. There is just no way at that time to collect and use such massive data sets. We have now reached a time where data collection could be said to be infinite, and it is now very clear that AI is using the data sets quietly in the West and in your face in the East. But what does AI mean? A basic definition is that AI, at its most basic, makes autonomous decisions and the tasks it performs mimic human intelligence. Other definitions can be found, but this one seems to paint the picture accurately. One of the benchmarks put forward is that an AI system called Amper composed original music for an album called I Am AI in 2017. This seems to mock the biblical 
I am. It is now estimated that the evolution of AI into every facet of modern life will take a decade or two, but who knows for sure how long it has already been here. Yeah, here's the thing, man. So, you know, people who don't have a good idea of what AI is uh, may have kind of missed the importance of what was just said here. The average person probably considers that if you meet a musician and he writes a song, that's a human quality, right? What's being stated here, and people I'm sure can look this up, I didn't try to, but I'm guessing you can, look up an album called I Am AI, published in 2017, where a system called AI autonomously, completely free of human intervention, created a musical album. So some of the tenets that you'll have to consider is at what point do we stop considering that this is mimicking what people do? For my part, I can't get over the hump of the idea that's held in the ghost of the machine that somehow this is alive on its own. Uh, I'm not there yet, but the ability of what we're talking about is flat out spooky. Some of it seems to be oversold to convince you there's more magic than there is, but the stuff we can prove outright is magical in its own right. What would you like to add before we wrap up hour one of 165, Jason? I wonder what the AI will think of our AI episodes. It's certainly going to be listening when we upload it to, oh, I don't know, a Google product. There's no doubt. There are not enough employees at Google to monitor everything they monitor. So if you get a strike or have content removed, AI did that. And half the time, you know, you might get a fortunate day and be allowed to submit a single sentence on why you think it's wrong. And you're told a human being reviewed that. But I would ask this question. How many of those little one sentence forms were submitted that day? Are there even enough Google employees to deal with that? I would ask. Or is it simply someone does a statistical probability lookup and then does whatever they're directed to do by that probability? Anyhow, that does bring the first hour of episode 165 to a close. We hope you'll join us all over at crow777radio.com. This is going to be a whole series on artificial intelligence and surveillance capitalism. And anyone who follows understands that hour two is the free speech zone by necessity. So there's all that. And we hope to see you over at crow777radio.com. Cheers. <laughs>